when we think about new technology, we also need to think about the laws that allow us to protect the expression of the ideas related to new technology. Specifically, we think of patent law and the protections that patent law affords the patent holder. And patents can be had over a wide range of inventions or creations, including human materials. What happens in these cases of human materials? And what is the larger issues with the patenting of cells and genes and gene sequences? Today on the show, we have Miles Jackson, the author of the new book, The Genealogy of a Gene, Patents, HIV, AIDS, and Race. And we're going to discuss these issues. This is New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. So we're here with Miles Jackson, and the book is The Genealogy of a Gene, Patent, HIV, AIDS, and Race. Now, one of the things that we like to do in the beginning is always have the authors just give us a little background about who they are. So who is Miles Jackson? That's a good question. Uh, If anyone knows, please let him know. No, uh, (laughs) for all of my sins, I'm a historian and philosopher of science. Uh, I teach at NYU. Uh, to join an appointment in the Gallatin School of Individualized Study and in the History Department in the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, and it turns out that in a previous life, I was actually working on a PhD in molecular biology. Uh-huh. Um, and then I, I tell the joke, I was visited by three ghosts <laughs> and then switched to the history and philosophy of science. And uh, I worked on the history of physics for a while, for the first 20 years. And then I thought it was time to go back to molecular biology because I had been a historian long enough that I could now approach molecular biology as a historian mm-hmm. and a philosopher and a sociologist rather than as a molecular biologist. So I decided to, to work on a topic that you know was really important, I think, in, in the age of biomedicine and, and biotechnology and something that I could follow scientifically since I, I had studied the field. Mm-hmm. Now, you call yourself a historian and philosopher of science. What do you mean by that? Um, I'm interested in the way in which science is shaped and is shaped by society historically. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I'm interested in the way in which skilled artisans, glassmakers, for example, made lenses for telescopes and their, re- and their relationships with physicists who need these artisans because they make rather important instruments. Uh, I'm also interested, in, I, was, I, I wrote stuff on the triangular exchange among physicists, musicians, and instrument makers because of the really interesting nexus on the ways in which physicists help musical instrument makers in the mass production of instruments, and also instrument makers such as organ pipe builders help physicists uh, conduct experiments in 19th century theories of physics. Mm-hmm. So historian of science looks at how it is that science is, is, is generated, how scientific theory comes about by looking at the context in which that knowledge is generated. So it seems very interdisciplinary. Absolutely, yes. So the book is The Genealogy of a Gene. Yes. Why the genealogy of a gene? Um, for several reasons. One, it was a sexy title, right, because it's easy to remember, and that's really important apparently for marketing strategies, of which I know nothing, I have to say. It also is a take on Foucault, right, uh, uh, as well as Nietzsche. 
and uh, the notion of a genealogy. And I was interested in Nietzsche and Foucault's notion of where is it that we are today? How do we explain that with things such as gene patenting? How do we get? How did it come about that it is legal for people to patent genes? How did it come about that questions are asked? Can one determine one's race by looking at the DNA sequence? Um, so what I do is I try to uh, put together various bits of history over the past century, mostly over the past 20 or 30 years, in order to understand that where we are today is not inevitable, it's not natural, but it's a product of socio-political and cultural uh, interests that that explain how it is that we are uh, where we are today. So where are we today? We're in a very fascinating period. It's it's a period that's dominated by biotechnology. It's uh, So on the one hand, for those who support biotechnology, and biotechnology has been absolutely critical for research in molecular biology the past 20, 30 years without money from big business, big pharma, a lot of important um, medications and techniques would have not been developed. That said, it comes with a cost because the the decision in 1982 by the U.S. Uh, Patent and Trademark Office to argue that genes could be patented results in a really interesting question, which is if I have a patent for on a particular item, I can exclude other people from using that gene. And so for it, it really questions what counts as scientific knowledge. When we think about science, we think about the open the sharing of knowledge among scientists, the, the progress of scientific knowledge. Now we're at an age where the question is, if we patent a gene, who owns that knowledge? Is the, is the knowledge owned by the company or the laboratory or the university that owns the patent? Or does the knowledge belong to humanity as a whole? And right now that's a very critical question as the United States and, and, and other nations around the world grapple with the fact that molecular biology is very expensive. You know, the National Institutes of Health have a budget has a budget of $30 billion a year, but the idea is that the more biotech companies can put into research, the, you know, the, 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 the less burden we have on U.S. taxpayers, which in one sense seems to be great, but again, it comes with a cost, and that cost is, does that mean now that companies own our genes and own rather valuable bits of information about our bodies? Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about that. The idea that a company could own a sequence of genetic yes. material that is naturally occurring, um, yes. and you talk about the idea of the commons. And actually, the commons and public welfare is a theme that runs throughout uh, yep. the book. And I wanted to know, like, your thoughts then on the idea of the the commons with respect to genes and genealogy. Um, yeah, the commons, unfortunately, are not as common as they used to be, you know, <laughs> or anywhere for that matter. I mean, I'm very strongly uh, a fan of the sharing of scientific knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, that, and ironically, patents were actually created, and Thomas Jefferson wrote the first bit of U.S. patent law in the 18th century, because what they did not want is trade secrets. Patents are, are the antithesis of trade secrets. Right. You divulge your information, it's a quid pro quo, and the government protects you against piracy. It turns out that gene patents actually, uh, and sociologists of medicine and science have shown this, have act, Mildred Cho, for example, at Stanford has shown this, actually increase secrecy. That if you're, if you're working for a laboratory 
laboratory, whether it's a private laboratory, whether it's a university nonprofit laboratory, and you're you're going to patent a gene, you are much more likely not to divulge information about that until after the patent is granted. Mm-hmm. Right? And so a really a cornerstone of what many people see science is about. Again, this this enlightenment notion about science and, uh, and technology for the benefit of all humankind is really coming under is really being jeopardized at the moment by this notion that we're going to give less to the commons. The commons is going to be far less important, and we're going to be we're going to suit we're going to cater to to private interests. And it really is a shift away because certainly in the 18th century. You know, the notion of a commons nature was uh, the idea of nature was a was a commons. Benjamin Franklin believed that nature is to be enjoyed by all; that one did not have a right to own a bit of nature. Sure. And so we have a product of doctrine of nature doctrine that that exists in the U.S. Supreme Court and in the U.S. court system in general. It's not really well defined, and you know the, the problem is there are cases in which patents have been given to life forms or from or natural entities. There are other cases where they have not been, mm-hmm. but. More recently, really since 1952, which is the the Patent Act of 1952, the U.S. courts, particularly the the federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court, tended to be much more patent-friendly, particularly in areas where they saw new growth factors. So biotech, the idea was historically... The United States has been rather patent-friendly when a technology is new because the idea is with gene patents, these companies that ask for gene patents, they're generally gene sequencing companies. They don't have much else. So if you want to encourage um, uh, economic growth, you have to convince venture corporate capitalists they need to to invest in these companies. What do you give these companies? You give them intellectual property rights. Mm -hmm. You basically say you don't have any gadgets or widgets or equipment yet to patent, but you have genetic information. And you can patent that genetic information that you can then sell in the terms of licensing fees, royalties, whatever. And that encouraged a lot of investors into these companies. So that place, companies like Human Genome Sciences were worth billions of dollars by the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Now, is this is this what we're seeing occurring? Is this a famous kind of version of a tragedy of the commons then? Um, I say it's the tragedy of the uncommon. Right? <laughs> I mean, the argument of the tragedy of the commons is that if, if you allow the commons in, if you allow people into the commons, you'll destroy the public good. We actually know that that article was uh, faulty historically, that there are actually very strong ways in which the king was able in 17th century England to police his commons. But I do think it's really, and this is the great title of a great essay by um, Heller and Eisenberg, their two intellectual property laws called The Tragedy of the Un, you know, Uncommons. And, 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 question about gene patenting. So I think this is the opposite story. What happens when you have a rush to privatize information? Uh, how does that uh, affect humankind as a whole, particularly with respect to healthcare? Now, now you talk about the commons. You also talk about, I think, what I'm going to call like culture and how culture affects this idea of the commons because you talk about the U.S., but then you talk about Europe and also yeah. Japan, so parts of Asia, and how culture perhaps affects how They've decided to patent or whether to patent certain kinds of material. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, the one thing is and why I chose the genealogy, as I said earlier, is that I wanted to show that where we are in the United States is not natural, meaning it's not inevitable, right, that there are choices. And to show that is to show that 
certain patent regimes cater to different cultural interests and cultural constellations. And the Europeans are far more uh, skeptical about gene patents than the United States. They have a lower percentage of successful applications uh, at the European Patent Office, same is true in the Japanese Patent Office. Uh, when it comes to gene patents, they have a higher what's called torpedo rate, meaning that the, the, the patent is actually uh, um, uh, taken away because of particular challenges. And uh, the Europeans actually have a moral, there's actually a, a, a moral clause in their patent law, which, you know, is anathema to the Americans. System. If there is a patent that's against the moral good, that is grounds in and of itself to revoke a patent. Mm -hmm. So although it hasn't been used for gene patents yet, uh, there have been uh, calls in Europe to argue that this is where the moral clause needs to come in. So certainly in Europe, although genes are still patentable in, in Europe, they're also still patentable in the United States despite the Supreme Court ruling in 2013. The Supreme Court ruled that if you take a gene simply from a genome, you may not patent it. If you make a copy of that, you're allowed to patent the copy. Um, the Europeans are much stricter uh, about it and much more skeptical. Uh, and they're also much more skeptical about the private ownership of life, mm -hmm. right? And private, and also private enterprise over foodstuffs. That's why genetically modified crops uh, in Europe uh, are are much more controversial than they are in the United States. Mm -hmm. So let's let's get into some of the things that you've written in the book. And I, reading the note to the reader. You make this comment, you say, you want to make sure you didn't have a history of science without the science. And, and right. so I want you to perhaps to explain what you meant by, by that. Yeah, I decided to be a little bit uh, scandalous because I figured it look, I'm allowed to. I mean, there is a sense in which, now I'm going to get nostalgic because I'm old, um, that over the past you know, back when I was young, in the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s, there was a really interesting turn in the history of science, which was to argue that the history of science is not just for scientists, but also for historians and philosophers and sociologists and anthropologists, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely correct. I think that's, I, I do think that we need to make that interdisciplinary bridge. The problem is, is that like many movements, we went a little bit too far in the sense that people stopped talking about the science, mm -hmm. right? And that, I think, is a problem because although I do believe that science is a cultural activity, I think you need to understand it if you want to argue that it is a cultural activity. Otherwise, you're just talking about the context of science and not the content. So I wanted to write a book in which people said, you know, it makes sense that I had to sit there and learn what a gene was because I now understand the, the debates about gene patenting more. Mm -hmm. because what went on. I also now understand that the notion of race is a really complicated issue now that Miles tortured us with so much stuff on, you know, how many genetic markers do you need to determine someone's race, mm -hmm. right? So that my idea was that you really begin to understand the intricacies and the fascinating caveats of, of science and society when you come to grips with the, with, with the science. Mm -hmm. Now, you also say this is a story about the instability of scientific, legal, racial, and ethnic claims. Yes. Could you expand on that? Sure. The interesting bit, and that's what it was so fun to work on in the 1990s and 2000s, this was a time, and it still is a time, when there are, there are a lot of instabilities that are going on in the patent world, whether or not genes were, are patentable. Again, this was a decision that 2013 was finally resolved, and no court of law anywhere in the world decided that genes were patentable or not patentable until the U.S. Supreme Court did it in 2013. Also, the notion of race. What 
counts as a race. This has been debated now for centuries, right? Um, and the last twist in the 1980s, 1990s, the question was, is it possible for someone to determine one race from, from the DNA sequence? How many what are called genetic markers does one need? Well, that's predicated on what one defines as a race. That's the first question. What counts as a race? How many races are there? And you don't always find an agreement. I mean, if you read top-notch journals on molecular biology, some will point to the old five races, the denomination of Blumenbach from 1775-76. Others will say there are three races that correspond to the continents of Africa, Asia, and Europe. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have so that's highly unstable as well. Um, you also have instability about at the time of the patent office whether or not you can determine a, a function of a gene just by having the the sequence and not ever testing that gene. And that was highly highly controversial. Nobel Prize winners wrote into the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office saying it is very dangerous for you to assume function just by looking at sequence homology. You need to do the molecular biology. So there are so many things that were up for grabs, and at, and at times they're still up for grabs at the moment that really played a critical role in bioethical, biotechnology, biomedical issues, such that if you take one thing away, the, the house of cards simply collapses. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you talked about, you got into how Nobel Prize winners wrote yes. in to say, mm-hmm. look, this is not a smart idea to allow the patenting of this yes. genetic information. Why ignore the, the super smart people and, and, you know, allow? That's a very good, interesting question. They were, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office basically said, look, you need to give us concrete examples of why this is not the case, which many, many, of, the, many of the scientists, including Nobel Prize winners, thought they did do that. Um, I do think what, what, what was going on is that they, the, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, to be fair to them, heard different stories. Some people said, you know, look, you don't need to have certainty. If you have, uh, you know, if it's a highly likely probability, that's enough. And indeed, there are people who argued, look, using sequence homology, you have a 75% chance of getting it right. For some, that's enough. Hmm. The idea is that they wanted to be patent friendly with the hope that they would encourage investment. What they did not realize, I think, in the 80s and 90s, that by being too lenient, they actually deterred, they deterred research, that they, they actually discouraged people from doing research on on genetic testing, diagnostic tests. So, so is the the mission to be patent friendly? Does that run counter to what a federal agency is supposed to be doing? No, I, I would say that it's their they they the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office finds it as their job to be as lenient as they can with patents, particularly if a technology is new. They basically they argue, and again, this you know it's debatable, but they argue that the more patents you give out early, the more likely people will invest in this new technology. I think that's true, and there are many examples. Polymer chemistry is a great example where, by allowing patents and being patent friendly, you encourage research and innovation. The problem is with genes; they're a bit different than chemicals. You cannot invent around a gene the way you can invent around a chemical, and that cause. I mean, as a result of that that actually does not increase innovation in research. It actually deters it. And I think that's what, by using chemicals as the model for gene patent law, that was the problem in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And people began to realize that by the early 2000s. Now, along with this, um, you know, 
patent friendliness of the U.S. PTO. You t- you you use two terms with in yeah. relation to um, these big pharma companies and uh, research giants, and you one of them is scientific entrepreneurship, and the yep. other one is economic colonization. <laughs> and I was wondering <laughs> if you could talk about these two terms for a second. Yeah. Um, the uh, scientific entrepreneurs is actually uh, a, a term I stole, I stole from Steve Shapin. Um, we wrote a, a great book on biotechnology in the 20th and 21st century, scientific vocation, uh, scientific life, sorry. Um, a great book. And basically what he talks about, it's a very interesting phenomenon that in the late, ni- late 20th century, you have a group of individuals such as J. Craig Venter who are simultaneously scientists and entrepreneurs. They don't see the two as being opposites, right? The idea in the, early on in the 19th century, if you're a scientist, somehow you should be, uh, you know, pursue noble, have noble pursuits, not be interested in financial gain. That clearly has changed by the, by the late uh, 20th century into the 21st century. So these scientific entrepreneurs are individuals who run companies who are scientists and believe that, you know, way forward in science now is to have some kind of commercial venture. That a commercial venture allows you to do things that you can't do if you're simply in a research institution, a research university, for example. So the scientific entrepreneurs are a new class of individuals from the late 20th century who are simultaneously business people as well as trained scientists. And again, J. Craig Venture would be an example. William Hazeltine would be another classic example of that. Economic colonization comes from various works in cultural anthropology in which uh, the idea is that we're colonizing the body and bits of the body and that the body now becomes, you know, this land to be conquered and to be and to be sewn up financially by companies. So it turns out that in the most recent study in 2013, uh, 2013 61% of our genes have been patented. That's a lot. We have between 22 and 23,000 genes. 61% of them have now been patented. Most of them have been patented by private companies. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that the human body now becomes this 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 land, this territory that is staked for claim by by various individuals who can see ascertaining a great deal of wealth from it. So, and how does race play into that? Race is fascinating because it comes in, in my story, from so many different directions, from so many different reasons uh, with one goal in mind. So you have, for example, on the one hand, federal institutions that I think are actually rather noble, uh, such as the National Institutes of Health. They passed in 1993 something known as the Revitalization Act, and then draw upon the great work of of Stephen Epstein um, called Inclusion on this point. And the Revitalization Act said, look, doctors in the United States have committed sins to people of color. Uh, and to those of lower socioeconomic status. One, of course, is the eugenics movement, where doctors played a rather critical role in sterilizing individuals uh, without them knowing about it. And the other, of course, is Tuskegee, the role of research and of, the, of the American Medical Association in Tuskegee. So they basically said, mea culpa, we've sinned. We want to address our sins and include people of color in research because the white male should not stand as the universal symbol of medicine anymore. In order to do that, as I said, they passed the Revitalization Act in in, in 1993, which said, 
well, Congress passed it, but they, they proposed it, which said that if you get money from the National Institutes of Health, you're required to include women and people of color in research for diagnostics and therapeutics mm -hmm. for disease. Right. Similarly, the Food and Drug Administration said you must include women and people of color to test the safety and efficacy of drugs. You just can't test it on white males anymore. Right. Um, so you have those federal agencies. You also have Big Pharma. And I don't necessarily think Big Pharma has the heart on the side of the angels. They see race as a way to market drugs, mm -hmm. right? So that we now have drugs that are race-based. Bidil is the classic example, which is a race-based drug for African-Americans who suffered a heart attack to decrease their chances of a second heart attack. We now know that we've had, we found no genetic markers to explain why that's the case. And we do now realize that it's just as effective for Chinese, uh, for Asian Americans, for Hispanic Americans, for Native Americans, for Caucasian Americans to take this drug. Mm -hmm. But the idea was that Big Pharma can now basically stop drugs from becoming generics. If they can show that a drug has a greater efficacy among a particular race, they can apply for renewal of patent. They can renew the patent. Oh, right. Yeah. So they're interested for financial reasons. They argue we're doing it for the good of humankind. And what they basically say is, oh, look, we're just listening to the federal government. The federal government's making us, you know, test drugs on different groups of people. One size doesn't fit all anymore. That's what the government tells us. Therefore, we're just being good citizens and making money as well. There's also the personal genomics companies, which are fascinating to me. Find out what your ancestry is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and also find out they're not they're no longer 23andMe is the classic company that does this 23andMe was told by the FDA for cease and desist when it came to talk about mutations which cause disease because they had no medical evidence to back that up but you can still get tested for ancestry um, and so that's a big fetish for Americans they want to know where from whence they hail and so personal form uh, personal genomics companies have a role as well as you know, patient advocacy groups. There's been a history in the United States for, say, Tay-Sachs disease research among Ashkenazi Jews, sickle cell anemia among African Americans. I mean, we now know that those diseases are not racial diseases, by the way, right? We now know that sickle cell anemia, which was discovered in 1910, is not the Negro's disease, to use the 19th, 19th, 20th, early 20th century term, but we found it in, among uh, Italians, among Greeks, among Indians, among Iranians. It turns out if you're a heterozygote, one normal copy, one mutant copy, you're resistant to malaria. So it's an environmental mutation, not a race mutation. And it turns out with Tay-Sachs, that's not an Ashkenazi Jewish disease. 15 out of 16 children born uh, in 2012 were from families that had no history of being Ashkenazi Jews. It turns out that Ashkenazi Jews screened for it so much because of these patient advocacy groups, they made it aware that they then basically screened it out. I mean, most people, if you're an Ashkenazi Jew, you basically get tested for Tay-Sachs, and, and, and you can decide whether you want to go with the, the child or have an abortion, right? So that there are screening techniques now. So there, there are different constellations. There are patient advocacy groups, and it's also patient advocacy groups for HIV AIDS, right, for breast cancer that have been very, very important the past 20 years that have the heart on the side of the angel, be your own expert, help citizens with their problems. Be your own expert was a great liberating term. However, Big Pharma usurped it. Big Pharma said, yeah, don't passively listen to your doctor. Listen to us, because in the United States, you have direct-to-consumer advertisement. We're only the second country in the world to do it. The first, by the way, is New Zealand. It's the ultimate trivia question. What's the other country?
and you just heal it. And most people have got that wrong. I'm sure false test. But from the ni- 1996, you can watch the Super Bowl and watch commercials about Viagra. Mm-hmm. When I was young, you weren't allowed to do that. So companies <laughs> directly advertise to the public, and they tell you, "Yeah, be your own end, uh, be your own expert. You know, here's this drug. Talk to your doctor about this." Right. Um, so various people are coming together defining race for very different reasons with the goal of what's called pharmacogenomics, the notion that we're now at an age where companies and, and biomedical researchers want to treat your diseases based on your DNA rather than a kind of a, a blanket chemical treatment of disease. Mm-hmm. So what is the attraction of choosing racial or ethnic categories despite there being so many different ways to analyze human differences? That's a very good question. I think a lot of it has to do historically. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a, for big pharma, it's a, a, their argument is, look, one size doesn't fit all. How can we get large groups with which people can identify? Historically, people in the United States do identify with race, even though the notion of genetic markers and race, we haven't found that. Even people who believe in a genetics of race do not argue that there's only one gene. It's not skin color. I mean, people with the same skin color can come from Jamaica, from Africa, from India, these are rather diverse populations. Indeed, Africans are the most diverse population because they've been around the longest. Humanity started in Africa. So you have, in a sense, this kind of historical legacy in the United States of people identifying in terms of race. You also have the sins of the American past with slavery and coming together to atone for those sins. So there's a political apparatus to deal with race. Um, and also, again, the, the financial impetus of, of big pharma and also the, the federal governments, the NIH and FDA are very powerful federal agencies for biomedical research and the fact that they think that you know it's important to, to, to talk about race and define race at the level of the genes in order to, to atone for the sins of the past. So there are many different very powerful groups that, that want to emphasize race over so many other possibilities. And that's the bit that's really disconcerting. I've always, and I argue in the book, look, if you define race properly, which is very tricky, I'm more than happy to have lens as a race in which we understand human diversity, but it can't be the only lens through which we look. And again, sickle cell anemia and Tay-Sachs are the classic examples. There's much more going on. It's about geographic ancestry. It's about the environment. These are other categories that are just as legitimate to look at human diversity than as, as races. But if, if, if a a group or a person, a researcher, were to choose, say, environment to study yeah. or, or some other less well-known category, how acceptable would that be in, among the you know, scientific community? I think it would be very acceptable, acceptable and certainly I mean, biologists, uh, I mean, biologists, most biologists, uh, particularly molecular biologists, do not believe in the category of race, mm-hmm. right? Uh, some evolutionary bi- evolutionary biologists might. There are some molecular biologists who do, but most, if you sample, would say that's not. I think that the, the problem talking to molecular biologists is that if you emphasize a lot of times the environment, it's not as easy to get funding for that research, right? So you don't get the huge money from the NIH, or you you might get some money, but not as much as as you would if you look at race as a particular factor. Mm-hmm. So though. While scientists would be very much interested because the whole idea of human populations and how genes spread due to local adaptation, Darwinian theory, that's a major area of of human diversity studies. It generally tends not to get – it certainly doesn't get the funding from big pharma. So if you want to get money from GlaxoSmithKline, from Pfizer, uh, it would be a lot more helpful to you to look at human diversity in terms of race. So – 
money is driving perhaps the research. Money drives research. <laughs> yeah, money, money definitely plays a very big role in research, certainly around in, in all major industrialized nations. And that's why I say, because people always say, well, let's stop the pharmaceutical companies from doing research. We cannot. It's not like, you know, the top-notch research is done at, you know, Harvard, MIT, Johns Hopkins, Caltech, Stanford, Berkeley, and the bozos are in the pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> At all. I mean, there's some really cutting-edge research going on in the biotech companies, big pharma. And so that's, you know, that's the trick is to strike a balance where, you know, big pharma has not been hurt by the fact, by the, by the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 2013. If you look at the major pharmaceutical companies, since a year after that decision, many, many of the stocks went up as much as 30% in a year. So this notion of doom and gloom that if we get rid of gene patents, uh, we're going to destroy research uh, has not borne for that. Simply not an accurate argument. So what are the lessons that uh, the patenting of CCR5 and then the Delta 32 allele and then the you know research and the connections to race and culture – and gene sequencing, what are the, the impacts or what, kind, what are the things that this is going to influence in the future that you see? I think, I mean, the areas, I mean, I do think that we're going to uh, see the, the notion of personal genomics, the, the fact that what a person's alleles, what the, what the types of alleles a person possesses will definitely affect the medical care that will be prescribed to them. Um, the one thing I do worry about is we fetishize the notion of, you know, of genes and health. We tend to ignore the most important statistic in the United States. That is one's health is, is directly correlated, not with one's genomes, but with one's socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's one thing that that's one of the morals to the book is that let's not be genetic essentialists here, that even if you mean, well, genetic essentialism is dangerous mm -hmm. because it ignores the sociocultural. And, you know, hopefully that will change with, you know, our healthcare system now. It depends upon if it's elected two years from now. Yeah. But um, I mean, I think we need to be very, although I think bio, uh, pharmacogenomics and the notion of genetic treatment is great, has a lot of potential, we have to be very careful to make sure that everyone has equal access to that treatment. And historically, that has not been the case in the United States. And I think we have to be very concerned with talking about race at the level of the genes, about being essentialist about race. It was very fascinating to me that a number of my African-American colleagues very strongly believe that there has to be a genetics of, of race. And I was quite flabbergasted. I said, well, why in the world is this the case? And I said, well, Miles, if there isn't a genetics of race, then affirmative action laws will be discontinued in the United States. And that was a fascinating argument to me because what they were saying is if you cannot find it in nature, it's not real. Right, that somehow if it's inscribed in nature, it is real, it is apolitical, it is universal, it is culturally neutral. Therefore, it's legitimate. And I remember saying to them, look, slavery is not natural by any stretch of the imagination. It is a social product. It's a pernicious cultural product. Just because it doesn't exist in nature doesn't mean it's real. It does not mean it's not real. <laughs> and so I think that's what we need to emphasize as well, that – Genetic essentialism in race can be very dangerous, and the notion that somehow if it doesn't exist in nature, it's not real, is also highly problematic. But the interesting thing is that 
about this particular gene is that I can use it as a heuristic tool to bring together what are really major themes in biotechnology the past 30 years, namely intellectual property, HIV, AIDS, and the notion of race. And I think those are, and those are the three areas where science and society really dovetail and, and indeed are, are, are inextricably linked in rather important ways that I think most people need to know about. Absolutely. You know, one of the things we've instituted here on New Books and Technology is the elevator pitch. So say someone somehow has tuned in right at this exact moment and they want to know what your book is about, why they should go read it at the library, buy it on Amazon or whatever the case may be. What would you say to them? How how tall is the building am I going up? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I would say to them, look, if you're interested in the ways in which biotechnology has shaped society and vice versa. If you're interested in knowing how patents influence your research on things near and dear to your heart like breast cancer, if you want to know how uh, gene patents influence HIV AIDS research, and if you want to know, understand how molecular biology is defining and redefining notions of race and the ethical, legal, social implications of that transformation, buy my book. Sounds good. (laughs) So what's next for you? Um, I'm, I'm in Germany at the moment. I, I'm working on, I've been asked to write a popular book, so an undergraduate kind of level book on the relationship between physicists, or between scientists, uh, musicians, and, and instrument makers mm-hmm. in the, from the 18th century to the present. Um, so that's a fun project. So I'm going to work on that. It, it follows on the second book I wrote a little bit. And I also want to write uh, my next project. I want to also go back to, to, to science, to, sorry, to molecular biology. And I want to work on the history of, of recept- cell receptors. Because mm-hmm. I think that's a fascinating story about the history of biochemistry, the, the history of molecular biology, and also the history of immunology. What, what is it, which is the science of self, right? If you think of immunology, it's about foreign invaders. It's about your immune cells, your defense cells fighting against these horrible, you know, invading cells. And I'm fascinated the ways in which immunology got framed in the 20th century about self versus non-self on so many different levels with receptors being the thing that makes you, your body understand what's you and what's not you. Mm-hmm. So we look forward to both those projects here on New Books and Technology. With this project out right now, The Genealogy of a Gene, Patent, HIV, AIDS, and Race. And we've had Miles Jackson on a show, and we really enjoyed this conversation, and we hope that you did too. So thank you, Miles. Thank you, Jasmine. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And this has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week.